the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. WTBN Pinellas Park, W262CP Bayonet Point. Brought to you by Moss Nissan. Locations in portions of this hour have been pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Odyssey. The following program was pre-recorded for broadcast at this time. Up next is Verse by Verse, sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries. important for us to understand all this because Paul says that before we were saved, the law acted just like one of these guardians to us. What he means by this is that like a pedagogist, the law guided us, it rebuked us, and it even punished us until we came of age and entered adulthood. And the coming of age that Paul is referring to in our lives is when we came to faith in Jesus Christ and were justified by Him. What's a pedagogus? We'll find out today on Verse by Verse as Pastor Steve Kreloff continues our study of Galatians chapter 3 about the purpose of the Mosaic Law. And we'll see why that word is such an apt description of the law. Welcome. Pastor Steve Kreloff is the teaching pastor at Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. And today we're in the middle of Pastor Steve's concluding message in this series. People who don't acknowledge God are in for a rude awakening, I'm afraid. Every human ever born, when faced with God's standards as written in the law, will find that there is only one escape, and that is God's mercy and grace. But will they accept it? In chapter 1 of his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul gave a brutally honest assessment of mankind without God. See if this doesn't sound like a perfect description of our modern society. So what we have in these final verses of chapter 3 then is Paul explaining to the Galatians and by way of application to every believer in Christ, and that includes us, that in coming to Christ for salvation, God has changed our status. And here's the way Paul lays out his message. His outline is very simple. His main points are very simple. There are basically two of them. He tells us, first of all, the kind of bondage we had when we were under the law. And then secondly, he explains to us the kind of freedom we now have under grace, being justified by faith in Christ. So let's get into our text and see this. The first main point of his teaching is to tell us about the bondage we had under the law. Verse 23, but before faith came, We were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Now, Paul begins by telling us essentially the same thing he said in verse 22, that the law has shut up everyone under sin in the sense that we have come face to face with the fact that we are transgressors of God's will, and the law now holds us under the sentence of condemnation. But notice how Paul, in this verse, gets a little more specific and a bit more graphic in his explanation of what this means. He starts off by telling us that before faith came. What does he mean by that? He means before Jesus Christ came into the world and men had the opportunity to place their faith in him for salvation. Now we understand that people were saved 
saved by faith, which is the only way to be saved, before Christ entered the world, as they looked ahead and they understood that salvation would come in the form of a redeemer. They didn't understand the details as we do, but they understood that they needed to look ahead, and they did, to a coming redeemer who would save them as God provided him. That's what Abraham said. That's what Jesus said about Abraham when he said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Abraham understood that God would provide the ultimate sacrifice for sin. But what Paul is talking about here is the actual coming of Jesus into the world, the incarnation, so that men and women would understand the details about Christ and the specific work of Christ on the cross and what that meant in redemption. And they would place their faith in Christ for salvation. But before this ever happened, both historically, meaning before the incarnation of Christ, and experientially, meaning before we personally had the opportunity to trust Christ for our salvation, Paul says we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Once again, Paul describes our relationship to the law prior to our conversion as a prison. In fact, notice that he actually describes our unconverted condition under the law with two prison-like images. First, he says, we were kept in custody under the law. Now, the thought behind this word, kept in custody, is to confine. That's literally what the word means, meaning that the law is like a jailkeeper. It won't let you escape. It guards you. It, it keeps you locked up. The second word Paul used to describe the prison of the law is being shut up, which is the same word he actually used in verse 22, which means essentially the same thing. Kept in custody. The law enclosed us. It locked us up. It, it held us captive without any means of escape. Now, let's think about this for a few minutes, about what Paul is actually saying here, because what he is describing, folks, is the true condition of every individual who has ever lived, and it is a horrible condition. Paul tells us that non-Christians, and we were once all in this situation, are all on death row awaiting the most dreadful of all executions, physical death that will only lead to spiritual, eternal death in hell. What's so terrifying about this is that there is no way of getting out of this predicament. There is absolutely nothing you can do to get out of this jail. There's no religious observance that you can do. There's no law you can keep that will unlock the door. There's nothing you can do. All unsaved people are under the same sure sentence of eternal doom, regardless of how religious or, or non-religious they might be. And you know what? They know that, that things are not right with God. They know in their heart of hearts things are not right. Although may, some may try to deny this predicament by saying that they don't believe in an afterlife and certainly not in a literal hell, the truth of the matter is that in their heart of hearts, all lost individuals know that they are guilty for their many sins and that they are not right with God. Now, they may not be able to pinpoint the problem in a theologically precise way. They may not be able to articulate it in a biblical fashion using the, the right theological terms, but they know what it is to feel the burden of sin and guilt they know what it is to feel the helplessness of being enslaved to doing what they know is wrong. And everyone knows what it is like 
to have a guilty conscience. Everyone. I'd like you to turn to Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapters 1 and 2, Paul explains that even before the giving of the written law to Israel, God wrote his law on the hearts of people, meaning that he has placed within everyone a conscience so that we would all have an instinctive sense of right and wrong and would feel guilty when we did wrong. A conscience is a moral monitor. And what Paul points out in Romans 1 and 2 is that ancient man, even without the written law of tablets that he gave to Israel, he did feel guilty about his sinful behavior. He did know he was wrong. He did know that his sins condemned him before God. I just want to give you the gist of this. I'll read a few verses to you. Stop and explain it so that you understand what Paul is talking about here. Romans chapter 1, starting at verse 18, Paul writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That expression, suppress the truth in unrighteousness, means that no matter what God reveals to man, he doesn't want it. He suppresses it. He doesn't live by it. He rejects it. Literally, the thought is he holds it down so that it has no impact on his life. Now, what he is about to say in Romans chapter 1, that ancient man, though he didn't have a Bible, ancient man had God's light, had God's revelation in nature, in creation. He may not have known some of the specifics of the Bible, but he knew enough to respond to the light. How would he, how would he know about God? Creation. God's power, God's orderliness in nature. We call that general revelation. That's why why Paul writes in verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. He says in verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature has been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Ancient man, modern man, has no excuse. He can't say, well, I I didn't know about Christ. Yes, but you knew about God. To some degree, you knew about God. You knew that there was a creator. You knew that he was powerful, but you suppressed the truth. And once you do that, once you reject the truth, you end up in a horrible condition. It is a downward spiral that leads to idolatry and debauchery. It leads to wickedness. Man stops being a worshiper of the true God and he ends up being a wicked, wicked rebel. We read in verses 28 and 29 of chapter 1, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind. What mind is that? It's their own minds. To do those things which are not proper. God gave man, and that's the plight of society. You want to live like this? Then you live like this. And he allows man to do wicked things within the limits of his sovereign plan. Paul goes on to say what some of those wicked things are. Being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, Inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although, notice this, although they know the ordinance of God, how do they know the ordinance of God? God's written it on their hearts. 
that those who practice such things are worthy of death. They know it. They not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. Paul saying, though they know that they are worthy of death for what they've done, they do it anyway. And they applaud others who do it. They approve of it. And how do they know that it's wrong? They have a conscience. It's the law written in their hearts. It tells them that they've done wrong. And Paul goes on. Notice chapter 2. He explains this, starting in verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. He said, you can't excuse yourself saying, well, I'm, I'm a Gentile, I didn't have the law. He said, you'll, you'll perish without the law. For it's not the hearers of the law who are just before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. If you could perfectly obey the law, you'd be justified. But we don't, so we're cursed. He says in verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. What he's saying is is that God has given everybody a conscience. And when we do wrong, we know we've done wrong, regardless of whether you have read that in the Bible or not. I I can recall a time in my life when I was a young boy. I went into a store, and I saw a baseball that I wanted, and I stole it. I took it. The owner never knew about it. I walked out, and I was smitten in my conscience. Now, you might think, well, it's because he comes from a Jewish home. He knew right and wrong. No, let me tell you a little bit about my home. Had I stolen that and told my parents they would have commended me for it. And I did not hear in my mind, thou shalt not steal. But I did have a burdened conscience. And so I went back and put the ball in the store again. I wish I could say I've always obeyed my conscience. I haven't. But at that point, I did because there was such an overwhelming sense of guilt. And not because of how I was raised but because of that conscience. Now, Paul's point, as he'll go on to say in Romans chapter 3, is that everyone, both Jew and Gentile, have sinned by disobeying God's law, whether written on stone tablets as the Jews had or written on their hearts as the Gentiles had. All are guilty, and it is the law that shows them they're guilty and holds them as prisoners of condemnation. But listen, not only is the law like a prison that holds us in custody, awaiting the sentence of hell, but Paul goes on in the next verse in Galatians 3 to use another metaphor. He does it to describe the law. He refers to the law as a tutor. Notice verse 24. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we might be justified By faith. Now, this is very interesting. Listen closely. The word that is translated tutor can be a bit misleading because when we think of a tutor today, we tend to think of of a teacher, someone who, who gives you educational instruction, but that is not what Paul had in mind. Not at all. See, in the ancient Greek and, and Roman world, wealthy families appointed a slave who supervised their young male sons until they reached adulthood, manhood. The slave was known as a pedagogus. That's the word in Greek, a pedagogus, which is translated here as a tutor. But a pedagogus was more like, note this, a guide, a guardian than he was a tutor. If you feel comfortable writing in your Bibles, cross out tutor or schoolmaster and put guardian. 
Here's the way one Bible teacher described a pedagogus and how he functioned in the ancient world. He wrote, he was usually himself a slave whose duty it was to conduct the boy or youth to and from school and to superintend his conduct generally. The King James Version's translation, schoolmaster, is unfortunate. For the pedagogus was not the boy's teacher as much as his disciplinarian. He was often harsh to the point of cruelty and is usually depicted in ancient drawings with a rod or a cane in his hand. He says J.B. Phillips in his translation thinks that the modern equivalent is a strict governess. A strict governess, a guide, a disciplinarian, a rebuker. It's very interesting that Paul used this word in another setting, but it confirms exactly what he's talking about here. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 4. This is the same word, but it will illustrate the point of what a pedagogist, a tutor was. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 explains that he was not harsh with the Corinthians as a strict pedagogist, but instead he was gentle with them as a kind father. Look at verses 14 and 15. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For if you were to have countless tutors, that's pedagogists, tutors in Christ, yet you would not have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. What the apostle is saying is, is that they had lots of people who were harsh with them. Lots of people who were stern with them, but only one who loved them and cared about them and treated them as a kind father as Paul did. He was their spiritual father. He led them to Christ. But notice verse 21, because he warns them that if they don't behave properly, he's going to have to act like a pedagogist towards them with discipline. Verse 21, what do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod or with love and a spirit of gentleness? In other words, he's saying, don't make me treat you like I'm your tutor. You know how rough that can be. Now, it's important for us to understand that the primary goal of a pedagogist was to prepare this child to be an adult. That was the point. This is why he was his guard, a guardian, his guide. He made sure that this pupil made it to school and back home again. He made sure that the pupil had all of his educational tools when he went to school. His job was to make sure that this child was was well-fed, taken care of, properly dressed. All of his needs were supplied. And when his pupil, his student, this child reached adulthood, the job of the tutor was over. The days of being this child's guardian ended. You see, the role of a pedagogist guardian wasn't permanent. It it was just a temporary position. When the student reached manhood, he was no longer under the authority of this guardian. Now, they might remain close friends. There there was usually a bond of affection that that developed, but the pedagogist had no more control, no more authority, no more right to discipline the young man. It was over. He moved on. Now, why is this all important? It's important for us to understand all this because Paul says that before we were saved, the law acted just like one of these guardians to us. What he means by this is that like a pedagogist, the law guided us, it rebuked us, and it even punished us until we came of age and entered adulthood. 
And the coming of age that Paul is referring to in our lives is when we came to faith in Jesus Christ and were justified by him. Look at Galatians 3.24 again. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. In other words, the law was that rod of discipline that God used in our lives and that it guided us and it told us what to do and it punished us when we didn't do what we were supposed to do. Listen, before we were saved, the law was oppressive, absolutely oppressive. We didn't want to hear all those thou shalt nots. And we hated the rebuke of the law in our hearts. We hated the feeling of guilt, the burden of sin. And we hated the consequences that we suffered for the wrong things we did in breaking the law. But all of that was necessary, absolutely necessary in order to bring us to Christ because it was only as we were beaten up by the law for our many sins and shown by the law how disobedient we really were that we saw our need for Christ. Listen, it is a painful thing to be rebuked by the law, a very painful thing to see what a depraved sinner we, we really are. It hurts. That's why I'm so concerned about some who think that they're saved and they've never been hurt. You've got to be hurt by Moses before you're saved by Jesus. But it's painful to be rebuked by the law and to see what a depraved sinner we really are, but so necessary in order to see our need for Christ to save us. Let's look back again at Romans chapter 7. I read this earlier to you because Paul's experience was exactly this. He was hurt by the law, crushed by it. He calls it death. Starting in verse 7, we read this in Romans 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. It means He means he would not have come to know that he was a sinner except through the law. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee, knew all about the laws. But one day, God enlightened Paul to the real standard of the law, that it was not only outward, it was inward. He said, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Paul, like all of us, was a covetous individual, jealous what others had, wanting what others had. Paul said, it was coveting that made me realize the law showed me that that was wrong, that was a transgression. He says in verse 8, but sin taking opportunity through the commandment produced in me coveting of every kind, for apart from the law, sin is dead. He said, I wasn't even aware of it. I just coveted. But then when I became aware of it, I saw how much of a covetous man I was. I coveted everything. I was once alive apart from the law. By that, he means that he thought he was alive. He thought he was okay with God. He thought he was spiritually vibrant and had a relationship. But when the commandment came, meaning when it came to his heart, when he understood it, sin became alive and I died. This is called conviction of sin. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. Meaning, Paul said, I thought that if I kept the commandments, I would live. He said, but just the opposite was true. I died. It was death. I realized I was on, de on death row. I was condemned for sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me. And through it, it killed me. So then the law is holy. Commandment is holy and righteous, he goes on to say. But he's a sinner. Trying to please God by externally conforming to His laws is a terrible trap. For one thing, it distracts us from the vital relationship that He wants to have with us, and it is completely impossible 
Yet, according to surveys, most Americans who call themselves Christians believe they will go to heaven because of their good works or their obedience to the Ten Commandments. And that's sad when Jesus died specifically to free us from that impossible burden. It was good to have you here today for another Verse by Verse with Pastor Teacher Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Lakeside is located at 1893 Sunset Point Road. For service times and other information, call 727-441-1714 or go online to lakesidechapel.com. That's lakesidechapel.com or call 727-441-1714. Let me remind you of something I haven't mentioned for a while. If you have a digital talking book player from the Library Service for the Blind and you want a free audio Bible for your digital player, call 800-838-5924 or visit blindbibles.com. That's blindbibles.com or call 800-838-5924. And, of course, another freebie is the large collection of audio files in the Message Archive at versebyverseradio.org. Because Verse by Verse is listener-supported, there's also a giving page where we make it easy to help support Verse by Verse. Thank you for your gifts. That's versebyverseradio.org. This is Jerry Peterson. As we've been seeing, the law is a harsh taskmaster. It demands 100% perfection 100% of the time. And that's a crushing burden. What a relief to find that even though it's impossible. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.